Welcome to the Bad Tutors Podcast. If you're here for the newest, up-to-date, accurate information on nerdy topics that are near and dear to your heart, well, let me tell you, you ended up in the wrong place. Here, we're talking about the hottest takes, the most grandiose displays of misinformation that you can think of. So stick along for the ride and you might just blow a blood vessel or two. On the inaugural episode, we're going to talk about... Uh, you know, something that has brought us the closest as friends, and yet we still fight about on probably a daily basis. Uh, and that's tabletop role-playing games. We're going to talk about the debate on, you know, which system is best. Uh, he's going to take the side of Pathfinder. I'm going to take the side of 5th edition. Uh, just to be upfront, though, we both agree that Pathfinder is better. Like that you'd agree, right? Yeah, it's, it's just, just an objectively true statement. Yeah, um, but I'm gonna argue on behalf of Fifth Edition because I do think it has its place in uh, you know this community. Um, so why don't we start on a little bit of background? So Fifth Edition launched in 2014 under Wizards of the Coast. They have 14 pre-made adventures and seven rulebooks, and they've also added or changed the rules after printing seven times. Now, Pathfinder is a little bit older. It came out in 2009 off of the split of D&D 3.5. It has around 28 rulebooks, 30 pre-made adventures, and four official errata pieces, but rules have been amended and rewritten countless times on wikis and forum posts. And why don't you go over the overall uh, feel of Pathfinder for us? So when we think of Pathfinder, the word we most often use is crunchy. A lot of big numbers. You're going to be adding a lot of plus 15, plus 16 bonuses by like Level 3. It doesn't take too long to get a lot of math involved, and if you really allow all the rules, like Sacred Geometry and a lot of other very math-heavy rules, you can really get bogged down in just doing math, which is kind of why a lot of people have switched online in certain cases, but that's often the biggest criticism I hear of Pathfinder. It's honestly the biggest criticism that I had when I started playing the game, as someone that hates math in my core, but... Eventually, you, you kind of start to embrace it. You you want to get that high. You want to get that highest roll and get that plus 32 bonus when you're building for it. And that's, that's the feel of Pathfinder. Just make it bigger. I want bigger numbers, always. Yeah, and if you really want to um, just figure out how crunchy it can get, um, look at the grappling rules. Uh, you know, one Don't of... look at the grappling rules. There's a flowchart online that makes it a lot easier, and I definitely recommend using that. Uh, fifth edition, however, is, you know, if if there was an opposite to Pathfinder, I would say it's fifth edition. Uh, it's very, very loose, where, you know, Pathfinder has uh, a feat for everything. Fifth edition, you ask your GM or your DM, uh if that's okay, and then they decide, usually on the spot, or this is a discussion you have um, before the game starts. For uh, skills, uh, this is like really where the difference shows up, uh, you know, most prominently. Pathfinder has ten knowledge skills. Fifth edition has four, being history, religion, nature, and arcana. I couldn't tell you all of the Pathfinder knowledge skills offhand. There's, there's a lot. There's too many, I'd argue. Knowledge geometry. or uh, no, I can think geometry. of two times that we've rolled knowledge dungeoneering in four years of play. Yeah, that's true. That might be a... a less than uh, five, for sure. That's not a question. Yeah, that, that might be a GM preference. He likes to give us uh, extra planar uh, enemies to fight, for I sure. Know, but... Have you read through any of the pre-made campaigns? It doesn't have... call for dungeoneering ever. <laughs> That's true. And it That's does true. call for other knowledges. Uh, in, in total, Pathfinder has 35 skills and 5th edition has 18. 
uh, and when you subtract the uh, knowledge-based skills, that's 25 for Pathfinder and 14 for D&D. So big sort of uh, flexibility there for the skills in 5th edition, whereas Pathfinder, there is a role for everything that you want to accomplish. Yeah. Pathfinder, I've found, is a lot more focused and a lot more driven in the things you want. Like, we talked about feats. The old joke is that there's eight feats to take a shit and five to wipe your ass. You you need to build for everything. You can't just decide you're going to do something. If you do, you're going to be worse at it. You can't punch things efficiently in Pathfinder without improved unarmed strike. You will be taking... A minus four to hit and a one d two to damage. I believe without the feet, so it's just useless. You have to build for absolutely everything. If you don't build well, you're you're just not gonna have a good time in Pathfinder. We have countless examples. Unfortunately, most of them are characters that I've made. And because of the kind of more focused effect, everything the power creep of the game to me feels a lot higher but more linear than exponential, where in 5e you just kind of hit a level and it's like, oh no, all the big spells came out. Where there's, the power creep is huge in Pathfinder, but everyone kind of has their time to shine. And then at like 16 it goes exponential and everyone is just a nuke. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, you really see that with the magic systems, just with one mechanic of it and counter spells, where in Pathfinder, you have to very specifically build for it, and it's actually probably worse than just preparing a ranged attack against a caster for when they cast as the trigger, uh, because then your damage makes it harder for them to get the cast off. Um, where in 5th edition, when you get to high levels and counterspell comes into play, that shit literally starts to feel like Harry Potter. Everyone is spell-slinging, and oh here's a counter spell oh but i'm counter spelling that counter spell it's it's almost like a magic the gathering stack when you get to high level magic in fifth edition and everyone plays mono blue exactly it everyone high level plays mono blue with a splash of only fireball <laughs> very true high level fifth edition dnd spell casters are mono blue wizards in magic the gathering um I like to say that 5th edition has flexibility in a single direction when you're uh, talking about classes. Um, the classes that you're going for, uh, no matter what archetype you might choose, fit a role. So, um, like Rogue, for instance, there's so many different archetypes now after Tasha's was released. There's the edgy Rogue whose parents died and the... Edgy rogue whose parents died. Don't oh, wait, there's the edgy rogue whose friends died. I do forget about him. Don't frequently. forget, there's the edgy rogue that sits in the shadowy corner of the tavern when you first Ooh, meet them. The strider rogue, that's exactly, true. Mm, exactly. That is always a good one to pull out. It's a classic. You really can't beat a classic like that. <laughs> As I was saying, rogue <laughs> traditionally is a striker, and you can build for uh, a different you know, sort of way to go. But in the end, you're going to be dealing damage and it's going to be coming from sneak attack. Whereas, you know, Pathfinder... You each... don't play Rogue. Also true. <laughs> Sadly. Damn. Yeah, you just don't <laughs> play Rogue in Pathfinder. Uh, but yeah, so... The... The archetypes, while they don't add a ton of features they can if you really play into the features change a lot of what your character does but primarily you're going to be stuck in what is a traditional role of tank healer striker or spellcaster yeah 5e to me always kind of felt like almost an mmo rp server if you think about it that way, where you're right, you're, you're kind of stuck into your four, five main roles, and then your class just dictates that, 
but then it's all of your flavor and everything you build around it that really plays into it more. Right. And if we're if we're going back to Rogue, if you wanted to be a pirate, Rogue is where you do it with the swashbuckler archetype. Um, one of the main things that you know that archetype does is allows you to apply sneak attack to single combat with an enemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas normally for sneak attack, you have to either be hidden or the enemy has to be engaged with one of your party members. Mm-hmm. But Swashbuckler removes that because you're a pirate or, you know, a dashing swordsman who specializes in dueling. You gotta be out there dueling people, and if you can't get that extra damage in on your duels, where are you getting it? Absolutely. So let's talk about just building your character here. So an example that I've always used in The Big Difference is one of our golden boy characters from our only finished campaign, Dana, was originally Donkey Kong. He, the player who wanted to play that character, uh, sat down for about five and a half hours one night and decided that he wanted to build Donkey Kong, who is one of his mains in Super Smash Bros. Melee. Now, in 5e, you just say you're a Goliath or a Florbolg, and there's probably a hurling feat that I don't know about, maybe not, but you kind of just do it. You kind of just be Donkey Kong, and you take Whirlwind. And then you throw things and you take Whirlwind, and that's it. And that you're Donkey Kong. You can just roleplay it away. That's not really an option in Pathfinder. He was originally building for hurling, which was like a five feet line, which takes until about level seven or eight, until he realized, oh, this is this is a bad idea and needed to build a different way. So wow. he had to totally shift what he was doing, even though he had planned this character for six and a half hours. Like, yeah. that's the kind of relaxed feeling you get when yeah. you build a Pathfinder character. You can't or, just choose to do something. Yeah, for you this character, Dinah, he started with the hurler archetype under Barbarian. And honestly... The reason that he trained out of those feats was mostly because the way that we were fighting shifted. Um, he was dealing damage with the hurling archetype. He was, you know, throwing enemies at other enemies, grappling them, pinning them, mm-hmm. you know, tying them up, leaving them for the rest of the party, and then going after the other one. But as, you know, encounters got harder, we shifted more towards a buff the tank being Dana uh, and let him take all of the aggro and you know honestly it got down to the point where like each combat he was tanking a crit for like 150 damage yeah pretty and, much and uh, you know he was sitting right over 200 health um, towards the end there but because of all the buffs that we had on him and the DR that he was getting he was able to survive two of those at one point. Now, he was a half-orc and he had Undying as a racial feature, but honestly, the amount of resources that we pumped into that one character alone was our strategy for the end game. We basically had two full characters dedicated to buffing one character in a five-person party. Yeah, so we had our bard, which was played by Ian. Yep. Uh, and then we had our... Um, alchemist who specialized in buffing this tank that we had he was a gnome with permanent reduced person cast on him so that he could literally hide in his ear if he needed to um and he was just passing him potions uh through the infusion um alchemist discovery uh every round and you know, Ian was also buffing the rest of the party with his uh, performances. Mm-hmm. Standard bard stuff. Yeah. Also, the alchemist had a monkey tumor that would simultaneously feed potions. Yeah. If you haven't looked at the tumor familiar discovery, do what so. What are you doing? It's, Fix that. It's absurdly strong and disturbing. Yeah, it's really it's really gross when you start thinking about it for more than like. Two seconds. Yeah. Um, but let's get away from that. Yeah, so, let's not talk about tumors. That doesn't seem like a great idea. So, 
you know, for I guess what we're trying to say there is Pathfinder, the build path that you take matters a lot and you have to have insight into what you're going for. Which is something that often turns a lot of people away from Pathfinder, we found. Like, yeah. a lot of people don't want to sit... Like, even when you know... When we're building characters, it still takes 30, 45 minutes to sit down and, like, really figure out what you want to do. And that's if you have, like, a pretty good idea of what you want already. If you're just finding a concept to build off of, like, it can still take a while, even when you're pretty experienced in the game. Yeah, and that partially comes into sifting through, like, 200-plus feats. But Um, if you like Pathfinder, that's what you love about Pathfinder. Yes. We've always said that 5e is almost a starter system. It's the perfect starter system in a lot of ways. It really is. But that's where we've always found it to go. So Pathfinder, God, I don't want to. I genuinely don't want to know how many feats there are in that game. There's a lot. That's a scary number. At least over two hundred, and that's oh, it's, just that's general a core rule book. I'm sure. <laughs> well, no, but <laughs> that's general in combat, and right. then you know, with all of these expansions that they have, um, there's more feats added. There's different types of feats. Uh, there's a whole feat line. That is literally your character entering what they call damnation, and you are taking evil uh, patrons on with each feat. And on the flip side of that, there's a halfling feat where you can find any mundane item in your pockets worth 10 gold plus your sleight of hand bonus once a day. And it's one of the only feats I've ever taken on halfling characters. Because you just, you gotta have your rope. Gotta have your rope, you gotta have a frying pan. You just need to pull a ladder out of your pocket... Boom, halfling, ladder out of your pocket. It's perfect. That's right. Pathfinder. <laughs> Before we get more into the core rules of uh, each of these games, let's just shift really quick and talk about homebrew. Ian, you feel pretty strongly about homebrew and and how... Home, homebrew is very interesting in Pathfinder. I've opened up a little bit to it recently, but it's just very tricky. Because of how we've said how crunchy it is, how specific everything is, you can run into these weird issues where you'll be like, hey, can I take this random race? It only does this, this, and this, and it's like, oh, one of them's a plus one to fire this and that. And that doesn't mean anything. It's just like, oh, it's a plus one to hit on Scorching Ray. But then you look back three weeks later and go, oh, at level 15, this is the most broken thing I've ever seen in my life, or I found this one spell that happens to interact and just completely breaks everything. So you just have to be really careful with homebrew in Pathfinder. Like, there's, I mean, there's some homebrew stuff I've been trying to pitch to RDM, currently even, but I'm, like, purposely trying to play the power down and, like, make it as baseline as possible to avoid these things because it's, I mean, it's a fuck of a concept <laughs> that I'm trying to work on but it's it's just very touchy where I find it's good is in your items that's the big place where you can kind of mess around and do what you want you can have cursed items you can give them a broken item and give it a crazy drawback or something but if you're talking about classes and rule balances and races that's a lot tougher to balance out and like if it you end up discovering oh no that's really broken or really bad it's a lot harder to go oh i need to just change my character's race or the dm goes oh well that doesn't work that needs to be gotten rid of oh fuck it's their class Instead of like, oh, I gave him this broken short sword. Oh, it was cursed and broke. Uh, oops. Yeah. That's or, a shame. You like, know, put him up against a sundering target that just happens to... Right. Oh, no. He got a crit on, against the short sword. That's yeah. so crazy. Whoops. There goes your busted weapon. Yeah. Um, or, you know, have them walk into an anti-magic. Maybe that's an anti-magic... Uh, circle trap where you know, they step into a room it triggers 
Oh no, all of your magic items now have no magical properties. Man, That's really, extremely mean to do to a player. I really wouldn't envy that person at all. Anti-magic is kind of hilarious. It's, it's as funny as Rust Monsters. Yeah. I, I'd put those on the same comedy level. But which I mean low, going to hell. Don't ever fucking get, throw a party against Rust Monsters, please. So Rust Monsters are oozes, right? I believe so, yeah. And when you hit them with a... Is it non-magical or just any weapon? I think it's just any... Ma- I, I don't think it's when you hit them. I think it's when they hit you, isn't it? It might be. As well, so they can break your armor. Basi- basically, when this thing interacts or uh, you know touches or attacks one of your metal possessions, it rusts and breaks and degrades. So it is sort of like uh, a GM or DM way to destroy pro- problematic items or uh, you know build paths so the rust ability uh, it's a primary touch attack for one so it's gonna hit way more often than anything else uh, any metal object they touch will swiftly rust and corrode objects touch take half its maximum hit points and damage and gains the broken condition. A second hit destroys the item. A rust monster never provokes attack of opportunity uh, by attempting to strike a weapon with its antenna. And it... Oh, and against creatures made of pure metal, the rust monster does 3d6 plus 5. <laughs> wow. Yeah, rust monsters don't fuck around. And oh, they're only CR3, by the way. Oh. Huh. So maybe not a lot of hit points. Twenty-seven. Uh, could could with be a eight, lot depending on with an eighteen on... AC. That's not awful, but at CR three, that is one of the scariest things out there, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I'd have to agree there. Um, but moving to fifth edition for homebrew, um, I would like to start by saying I don't usually allow homebrew content in my games. It has been problematic in the past for when I have allowed it. Um, I allowed a gunslinger in a 5th edition game that was at one point not dealing enough damage and then we hit 5th level and it was dealing way too much damage out damaging the wizard of our group which is you know just absurd when you think about it Um, but if you are a fan of homebrew I would suggest the subreddit uh unearth arcana it's great for spells and classes and races and items and whatever you could be looking for um that being said balancing homebrew can be extremely problematic usually one person cannot have enough foresight to make sure that what they release is balanced Um, it'll either be underpowered or overpowered and it will outperform or underperform whatever the other players are using if they're using official rules only Mm -hmm. so that's sort of the reason why I don't allow it at my 5th edition tables I will say that with 5th edition because there isn't rules for everything that you might want to do uh, there is sort of space for homebrew in that aspect, just collaboration between the DM and the player. Hey, I want to use a whip to wrap around someone's ankle and trip them. That is something that you can very clearly do in Pathfinder. With three feats, you unlock that ability. You can clearly do it. Just don't. Yeah, whip is bad it. in Pathfinder. As much as anyone wants it to work, it's bad. Don't build ivy in Pathfinder. You're not going to have a good time. Correct. Uh, I will say, the rule of cool, as anyone who has played a tabletop might recognize, uh, is sort of stapled into 5th edition. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might not explicitly say in the rule books, if something is really cool and it gets your player excited, let them do it. Uh, you know, there's like the improv saying yes and, yeah. use that in, in D&D or Pathfinder. I believe in the beginning of one of the fourth edition rule books, something like that actually was written in on the first page as well, right? 
not verbatim, but it basically did say, these are just guidelines. Have fun. The point of this is to have fun. Yeah. Not to make a strict rule system that you must abide by. Yeah, and there's something similar printed in the DM guide. Really ironic for 4th edition to say, I will add. Yeah. 4th edition is maybe a topic for another podcast, honestly. Um, You have a lot to say, and I love hearing about it every time. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But so, you know, 5th edition rule of cool, uh, you know, is it's integral to a game. But, you know, you have to reel it in sometimes. You can't have a player jump over a mountain with a natural 20 athletics check. Uh, Obviously, that's problematic. Um, And a lot of things do come down to just one role in 5th edition. Um, In Pathfinder, you know, there might be a way to jump over a mountain with like a 14 feet chain and then an item that costs like 40,000 gold. There's actually a pretty interesting way to get your jump height up really high. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So (laughs) You can do it. Again, don't. Don't be a kangaroo man. (laughs) But you can be. You can raw be a kangaroo man in Pathfinder, which is cool. It's just useless. And you only really get to build for one thing in Pathfinder. So when you build for jumping, you're really just going to be a fucking drain on the party. That's really what's going to happen. Yeah, unfortunately. I, I will say As that there's... As someone that's been that character. <laughs> there is a Slayer archetype. Uh, I think it's called Avalancher, where you know you get your sneak attack when you fall greater than 10 feet. And you also get you know like a charge bonus when you fall greater than 10 feet. But again... Don't build to jump high. Just don't do that. <laughs> you're often not going to be 10 feet above your enemy unless you're building Tarzan, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. Um, so before we get to, to character builds, uh, just a quick aside. Um, Pathfinder power does come from your feat selection, your class selection. That is true. Absolutely. But also how much money you have. And if you can get access to all of the magical items that you want. Yeah, at about, I'd say somewhere between like level 6 to 8-ish is where feet start trading off for magic items. That's like right about when you'll be able to afford your, what, belts, headbands, and bracers? I don't know. All of your stat boosting items. That's when you start getting your plus twos and your plus fours. Yeah, yeah. Especially when you take Craft Wonders item. Yeah. Which, in our games, is just a must, because we don't get magic items. Yeah, our DM is very low. Yeah, low wealth, low treasure. That is... not, Not that we don't get a lot of magic items, we do, but he likes to give us uh, sort of obscure magic items that obscure or very or like very impactful. Like we don't get yes. any magic items for a dungeon, but the one we get is nuts in like alters the campaign. So yeah. it's a good trade off, but it means someone is required to take craft wondrous item because most of our enemies aren't going to be dropping belts of giant strength. Yeah, you'll get yeah. one in a campaign. And then enter a weightlifting competition to sell it, but also earn it back. Yep. Standard Pathfinder stuff. Just, you know, the Standard regular stuff. Standard Pathfinder stuff. And, you know, while your barbarian tank is in a strength contest, your wizard will go out, raise a bunch of undead in a church, and then get himself killed. Standard Pathfinder stuff. Standard. Standard self. Standard. You know, how everyone does it. Alright, so why don't you go into your first Pathfinder build here? Alright, so my first one is a Noise Marine, which is a 40k concept, because recently I have been, uh, uh, I'd say into Warhammer 40k, I think addicted is probably the right word. I'd say addicted. Yeah, that, that feels like a more realistic term if I'm being honest with myself. So a noise marine is a space marine that decided to convert all of their weaponry to deal sonic damage, basically. Uh, a cacophony of sound is, or I believe cacophony of destruction is one of their stratagems in the tabletop. Which just makes all sonic weapons 
deal extra damage, or I believe hit an extra time since it's a war game. So that's what I wanted to build, because it's one from one of my favorite factions in Warhammer 40k, the Emperor's Children. So I set out to build Sonic Damage in Pathfinder. Uh, at first I wanted to just look at guns. I asked our DM, hey, will you just like let me have Sonic Damage instead? Like It's worse in most cases. But there is an enchantment that makes your gun or makes your firearm deal sonic damage. So he's like, no, you just have to you just have to get that. And I was like, alright, that makes sense. So I found Bard. I found Thundercaller Bard and Duettist. And I found out they stack. So on Thundercaller you deal, I believe, 3d6 on a performance. And with a Duettist, you can have a familiar that turns into a second performer. And at, I believe, 8th level, both of you can be performing that. So that's the most sound damage. This is not the most fleshed out build. It's one of my most fun builds, in my opinion. Yeah, you can definitely um, get more damage from a different class. But if oh, you're yeah, it is not the best. But if you Sonic. want to build Sonic damage, you can get, I believe, up to like, I want to say it was somewhere around 8d6 or 8 plus bonus. So it would be yeah. charisma bonus. So you're looking... At level 8, you'd hopefully be looking at like plus 6 or 7 at least. You'd want to have your charisma at a base 20 by then. Yeah. And hopefully have some items. So yeah. that's how you can do that. Um, a quick Tarzan build. Uh, so there's a charge build that I've always looked at because I've always enjoyed the idea of Cavalier. But it's ju you just have to play a small character and ride a medium mount, which is fine, it's just never what I've wanted, because you, as I learned the first time I played Cavalier, you can't bring a horse into a dungeon, who knew? Um, it's, a real, it's a real shame when you just lose half of your class out of nowhere. It's not fun, let me tell you. Yeah. So, I found that uh, you can charge in the air... So what you do is you get a familiar, any familiar you want that can fly, and you probably still need to be small so it can support your weight, or if you have an immovable rod, you just have the bird fly an immovable rod with a piece of rope up 15 feet in the air on its move action, you're holding onto the rope and do your charge off of that, and then you can just always be getting an aerial charge. And, and I mean, go. then it's just charge rules, and you're just making a normal charge character, but you just have to do either Tarzan or George of the Jungle yell every time. That is raw. You have to. It's required in the same way that if you're playing a witch and you use cackle, right, you yeah. are required to cackle. That isn't a home. That isn't a homebrew table rule. That is a an official Paizo said you must. Yeah, and you know, with the cackle hex, it is. Always interesting to hear someone cackle like that. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody cackles differently. We've we've had a decent amount of people use it, and it see you get a lot of someone's personality in their cackle. I find. Yeah, some people throw their head back and cackle, and you can tell because they move away from the mic, so it gets a little quieter, mm -hmm. and everybody holds their breath to hear it, and it's amazing. <laughs> or you get someone who does it, uh, you know, completely sarcastically, and it's equally amazing because mm -hmm. you know that you know they might be uncomfortable. Uh, but they're just following the rules. There's nothing they can do about it. There's nothing we can do about it. Blame Paizo. That's, that's whose fault it really is if you want to get it. Yeah, if you ever have any issues, you should definitely reach out to Paizo and uh, complain. Yeah, email, you should email them about the cackle rules. Yeah. Honestly. For my Pathfinder build that I'm bringing to you guys today, it's more of a feat spotlight. And I'm also going to tell you how to do such a thing in 5th edition. Um, any of you that are familiar with Game of Thrones... Uh, you know who the Faceless Men are, and you know who Jacques and Hagar is. Um, there is the feat, the Nameless One, uh, and the way that that works is with a ritual, you can shed your true identity, which is, you know, really one of the core tenets of this We'll call them a cult of death. Yeah, uh, I think that's fair. Yeah. Uh, so you shed your identity and you instead don a physical mask and that's your identity. Um, you can 
gain protection with this feat from any sort of scrying or divination effect and something that would target your previous identity. So let's say, you know, your character's name was John and then you get this feat and, you know, whoever has an issue with you uses named bullet against you targeting John. Well, it doesn't have an effect because you're not John anymore for all intents and purposes. Um, there are feats that, you know, can expand off of this nameless one feat. Um, they sort of grant you some abilities, but, you know, this is an obscure feat that is really just flavor. Uh, you're not going to take this usually to gain any sort of mechanical advantage. And if you're playing Vigilante, do not take this feat. This removes your social identity and... <laughs> Really? Yes. So, <laughs> so if, if at any point, uh, you know, you're playing vigilante and take this feat, you lose your social identity, which, uh, you know, vigilante is one of those classes that is extremely specific and when you can play it. Um, but one of the great things about it is the social identity can be a great crafter and money maker or you know like a celebrity and when you take this feat you lose all of those class specific features that is abs i had no idea about that that is yeah. absolutely hilarious yeah yeah so um you know don't play vigilante with this feat uh and also you know when you take this feat and you add in a wand of disguise um you know you can change your face with the wand of disguise and you don't have a true identity because of this feat and i think that captures the idea of a uh, faceless man assassin in pathfinder um for fifth edition you would probably go with a college of whispers bard um at sixth level whenever someone dies within 30 feet of you uh, you can assume their appearance for one hour. So there is a particular scene where a character in Game of Thrones uses an ability that is exactly that, taking a character that they had killed prior and assuming their identity. Um, and I mean, honestly, that is just literally copy and paste with College of Whispers archetype. Um, and you know what? Bard doesn't get in 5th edition? No, no. Bard is the most strong class in 5th edition, I would argue. The other contender is, pa is Paladin. And, uh, you know, this archetype also adds psychic damage to attacks. Of course it does. Uh, by expending Bardic Inspiration. And, you know, oh. psychic damage, very strong damage type in 5th edition. Yeah. Not many things have resistance to it. So, damage getting through all the time. Mm -hmm. Do you have another build that you wanted to talk about? I have two more that I think will act, that are actually solid builds. Those first two are just fun. These two, I think, are real, and you're going to hate one of them. Which one would you like first? The real one or the one you're going to hate? Let's go with the one I'll, ha I'll hate. All right. So, I, so far, I've only named it Tower Gun. So, Tower Shields are probably one of the worst things in Pathfinder easily one of the most memed about things of yeah. just how absolutely god awful they are in reign of winter we had a character um that also used a tower shield um and it was hilarious it wasn't good but he was a cowardly paladin he played it so well he builds that particular player builds concepts not characters and i love it he plays yeah. them so well he plays them to a t it's great but i decided to go back to tower shield i was like well i don't want to just build a shield that doesn't sound any fun so what if i throw a gun in there how good can i make this i really hope this build surprises me with this effect it's uh i dislike guns in pathfinder not because i don't think they fit i just think they're bad uh and as Ian stated, Tower Shield is bad. Yes. So this is kind of combining two, one bad and one mediocre to all right thing. So this is a frontline build. Okay. So it's two fighter archetypes that stack. You have Tower Shield Specialist and Trench Fighter. 
Okay. So, they both play off of each other. Let me pull up Trench Fighter. Trench Fighter has two abilities. One, dex to damage on guns. Yes. Which makes guns valid again, pretty mm-hmm. much. Yeah. And when you have full cover, you gain additional defense based off of that. Gotcha. I don't remember the bonus. I see where this is going. Yeah. So, I don't know how much you've looked at tower shield rules. I'm familiar with the feat you're about to explain. So you've heard of mobile bulwark, which is what I'm going to say. Yeah. But it still works without mobile bulwark. I do. It is, you should use mobile bulwark. But when you pair it with another feat called the, I don't know how to pronounce it, either Kragodon's or Cargodon's stance, for a move action with a tower shield, you plant in place, and every subsequent turn, you add on one to your defense. To your AC? Yes. Okay. So every single turn that you stand in place and take that move action, you're adding to your AC. And for Mobile Bulwark, you're planting your shield mm. to be able to get off your Trench Fighter, to raise it even higher. Gotcha. Because um, Mobile bulwark, bulwark grants you cover, correct? Yes. Your okay. tower with Mobile Bulwark, it will you plant your shield on one face of your square yeah. and get full cover from that direction. Gotcha. So, that already is just a high AC Pathfinder build. Yeah. Which you're not sacrificing anything for it other than armor training and fighter. Yeah. Which isn't the best, but it's whatever. It's one of you the can, most sacrificed things in yeah. fighter archetypes. You can absolutely do without armor training. Yeah. So from there, you just you don't need to invest anything other than into decks, which, oh, hey, what do you use for guns? It's decks. Yeah. So when you're getting your full decks to damage, you're getting that. You're not getting your full decks on armor, obviously. You're using heavy armor. But you still have full guns. You need to take amateur gunslinger, but you're fighter, so you got feats. Yeah, you got, you got feats, feats for everywhere. Um, Trench fighter doesn't give that. Amateur no, it, it doesn't, actually. I That's know. actually surprising. It really is surprising. I thought so as well. Um, but you're fighter, so you have the feats to spare. So Right. You have that, and then I'd argue that you should be able to use a two-handed... Shotgun, if you planted your tower shield and rested it on top. I argue that that makes sense. Raw, you obviously cannot. I think that would really make the build shine. I think that would take the build from going just like good high AC, good damage, decent gun damage output to like actually being good. There's a gunslinger deed that you can take that you can put poison into all of your bullets as well also, so you can spray a 15 foot cone of poison at all of your enemies yeah i believe while still doing full damage yeah so it's not the best because poison also kind of sucks so i'm kind of combining a lot of mediocre effects into one like decently strong thing yeah but i like it it sets out to accomplish you know one thing mm-hmm. which is make use of both of these archetypes in a way that you only get advantages, and I think you accomplished that for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I am surprised. Right? Tower is, Shield... It's the only thing I've ever thought of that made Tower Shield not seem like absolute dog shit. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're not going to go into like how guns can deal more damage with a different build, because obviously that's not the idea of this build. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the gun damage is just nice. Yeah. You're the tank, but you can still hit things as well. Yeah. So why don't you go into your your last build for us here? All right. So this is the one that I've easily spent the most time on. The only thing that I dislike about it is that I have to be a half-elf. And as you know, I am incredibly xenophobic towards elves. I absolutely fucking hate elves. I think they're one of the worst races in fantasy. I love them. I want them to be there because I want to be able to kill as many of them as possible. Do you Um, you need a half-elf because it gives you two favored classes? Because it gives you ancestral arms. Oh, This build uses a falchion. As you know, exotic items are really cool, 
But they're, on average, not good unless you pick half-elf. Yeah. Because expending a feat to only be able to use an item, even though this build is mostly fighter, is still a lot. Like, it's still Uh, a lot to have to take. You could go human and just take exotic weapon proficiency as your bonus feat from human. This build does have exotic weapon proficiency written in. (laughs) How is it so strong in that form? So... Ian does not um, have to be a half-elf. Thank God, point. yeah, wow, we solved it. Perfect. So, all right, um, Buckler Duelist is the archetype for this. So it is, for some reason, specifically a Falcata, not a Falchion. Uh, it is a Falcata that you have to use. And so... Which f- is strange. I've never seen something restrict you that heavily to a weapon. <laughs> Other than the the Crimson Assassin Prestige class, yeah, is that that's the, the one that's saber tooth? Yeah, sabers? that's the only yeah. other thing that restricts or sawtooth sabers. A specific weapon. I would say the entire class of Swashbuckler has you restricted to rapier. Ooh, that's true. Mm. Just because, I mean, one-handed piercing weapons, the rapier is the best or one. A dagger. It's, and it's you're pretty not much pick a dagger. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, continue. All right. So level one, your feats are so exotic weapon proficiency, improved shield bash, and shield focus. Second level, you're taking combat expertise, and your class ability gives you buckler bash. So you're now two weapon fighting with a buckler and falcata. It gives gotcha. you. You don't have to take two weapon fighting. It gives you the. It's like a whole. It's not technically two weapon fighting, but it functions more or less okay. the same. Um, this is classic level. sword and board stuff so far. It, right? Oh, this is literally the epitome of sword and board. Okay. I we I couldn't think of any build other than that tower shield build that our paladin played that used shields. I can't yeah. couldn't think of a single other build that used a shield that we had ever played with. Yeah. So I wanted to make one, and this is it. This is what I think one of the best ways to do it is. Then third level, you get weapon focus Falcata, and then Buckler Catch. So. Buckler Duelist, when someone hits you, you can make a check to catch their weapon between the Buckler and the Falcata and disarm them with it. Okay. So it's just a little bit of extra versatility. As you know pretty well, combat tricks suck and they're not fun. Combat maneuvers? Maneuvers, sorry, yeah. yes. Um, they're very cool. Well, there's they're one that's very good. Great, there's one that's very good, yeah. and that's grapple. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But there's a huge discouraging feat chain for grappling but anyway mm-hmm. continue um after that you got your classic weapon specialization and then fifth improved disarm and you get sw- strong swing which just adds damage to your falcata so you're now i don't remember the damage offhand unfortunately but it's one of the higher damage output builds i've made actually and i as you know i've actually been working for fucking just damage output yeah and this is still one of the higher ones so you're Already just five fighter doing some pretty good sword and board stuff. Yeah. But that's when Buckler Duelist stops giving you things that like really matter in any meaningful way. Right. So I realize, well, I don't need fighter anymore. I've already gotten everything I need out of it. Now what do I do? And I was talking with you earlier, and I think, personally, that Mesmerist is one of the best classes that you can go into when you've just completed your goals in Pathfinder. It's... I don't want to say it's bard, but better. I don't think that's true. It's a different flavor of bard that yeah. is just so incredibly versatile. It's It feels like a 5e bard, to yeah. be totally honest. That's yeah. what it really feels a lot closer to. You have your mesmerist tricks that you implant into your party members to use as reactions to give them bonuses or disable enemies. You get your... The stare is a big thing for yeah. the mesmerist. Yeah. I get rid of that because most of the time I take Vox, which is literally turning it into a bard because you're now just shouting insults <laughs> at your opponents to deal extra damage. Um, so with that, with one level in mesmerist, you get consummate liar, compelling voice, hypnotic stare, and painful stare. Painful stare is what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Painful stare, when you stare at an enemy, you're damage gets an extra d6 added to it nice. possibly a bonus to it as well i doubt it though the trick i haven't decided on honestly the mesmerist tricks for this build are your just extra a nice utility. Yeah, yeah that's a like nice your, i'm gonna set on. this up at the beginning of the day yeah 
it, it's you're prepping your spells. It's just exactly. nice. It's not what you're going to be going for every day. Um, at second level mesmerist, so seventh level, you're taking double slice, which is where all your actual damage output comes from. Gotcha. And then this the is f- double you, strike it, or double slice is strength damage to your offhand weapon, right? I believe so. Let me check. Uh, add your strength bonus to damage rolls made with your offhand weapon. So yeah, gotcha. normally your buckler is dealing a d i think you can get it to a d6 with a spike on it and the yeah. normal stuff yeah so just being able to add an extra five onto that is nice yeah um yep. then at third level for mesmerist you get wounding words which is like i believe an extra 2d6 so it's a two weapon fighting build that you are literally running up to someone slamming them with a sword and shield and shouting in their fucking and it's hilarious, and I think it's one of the stronger builds I've built with the possibility to disarm and just so much random versatility that you can use yeah. just because it happens to be Mesmerist. Yeah, Mesmerist has versatility just baked into the class mm-hmm. as a nice aftertaste. Uh, it's sort of an aside to the main focus of Mesmerist. It's just this nice little, you can buff your allies too. Yeah. And, you know, that's great. Yeah, whatever you want to do, you can do that and more with a Mesmerist archetype. Right. Uh, so let's go into my very gamey uh, build for 5th edition. And I will like to, or I would like to make an aside right now. This build is not originally mine. I have made some tweaks to it, um, but I found it on Reddit like maybe four years ago. Uh, I can't find the original creator or poster of it. So basically... Is this the build that was meant to kill Jacob? No. Okay, it's not that build. It it was a build that I found when I was looking for high target damage, and I eventually just decided I'm going to play a bard because they're the strongest class in 5th edition. And then, you know, with some inter-party conflict... Uh, I abandoned the party in a very uh, shitty way. Anyways, this build is a three-way multi-class, starting with Wizard, going to Sorcerer, and then finishing the rest of your levels with Paladin. So you go Wizard first, and honestly, you don't need a high end. If you don't know this, in 5th edition... There are prerequisites to multi-classing. For Sorcerer, you have to have 13 Charisma. For Paladin, you have to have 13 Strength and 13 Charisma. And, you know, that's two uh, abilities that you need to focus your stats in. So you start Wizard and ignore Int. You just need two levels. And you're going to take the Divination School. Now what that does is that gives you the ability that when you're preparing your spells in the morning, you also roll two d20s. And you set those d20s aside, or you take note of their number, and you can influence future rolls, whether it be yours or an opponent's, uh, with those d20s. So you're hoping for a low roll here, actually. Um, And then you're going into Sorcerer. Now, Sorcerer, you go three levels to get... uh, Metamagic. You also could take the Clockwork Soul archetype to deny any sort of advantage a creature might get against you, and that's within 60 feet. Um, you're going to take the Quicken Metamagic here, and, uh, and then you go Paladin for those sweet, sweet smites, which may be the most OP thing in 5th edition. I love that your notes just say Paladin X. I don't think your oath matters. I don't think it does. I don't think it does. (laughs) Paladin's just strong. Yeah, I would go uh, Conquest because of the flavor of this build. You are an assassin. um, You know, you're using a great sword. You're out there to remove high threat targets to you and your goals is the way I like to uh, picture this build. So you start with your enemy, right? That's what this build is, is focused around, is eliminating one person very quickly. Use the quicken spell metamagic to cast hold person 
on them. That's a bonus action. Now, you know, you approach them and you're using a greatsword because uh, you're paladin. And if you need to, if they have advantage on this for whatever reason, and the DM should be telling you this if they had advantage on the rolls, uh, you use your clockwork soul archetype to remove that. And now they're held still. They are helpless. And in 5th edition, if your attack hits, it's an automatic crit against that person. And in 5th edition, whenever you crit, you double the dice and any bonuses to the damage. So if we start this build at Wizard 2, Sorcerer 3, and Paladin 1, you cast Quick and Hold Person uh, using your Divination School Power to give them the low value so that they fail your spell DC. If need be, the Clockwork Soul archetype to remove advantage. Uh, and then you start swinging with your greatsword. So you're adding your strength modifier uh, on the crit twice. And, you know, ideal world, you'd have 20 from the beginning. Uh, so you're swinging for, you know, 10 damage is the minimum that you'd get here. And then with the greatsword on one swing, you're rolling 4d6, which is pretty good. Then you add in smite. And let's say you sacrifice your second level spell slot and now you're rolling uh 2d8 and then that becomes 48 because it's a crit pretty crazy 46 48 plus 10 that's some good damage you start getting higher levels in paladin at level five when you take the attack action you get two swings with your sword now assuming you have already set up and they are indeed affected by hold person and both of your attacks hit you are rolling for 8d6 plus your strength modifier twice, or I'm sorry, this would be four times because it's two hits. So 46 per hit plus your strength modifier twice gets you 8d6 plus your strength modifier four times. And then you add in your divine smite dice doubled. So if you sacrifice a third level slot, you're rolling uh, 3d8. And if you roll or I'm sorry, on the crit, that's 68. And if you do that twice for each attack, then you're getting you know, 12d8 for the damage there. So, you know, 8d6 plus 12d8 plus, you know, 20 just from your strength is absurd. And that's quite honestly the gamiest I think you can get in 5th edition uh, on its surface level without doing you know, some, some nuts stuff. And then, I mean, obviously, you know, like Warlock and Paladin uh, with Warlock Pact of the Blade can do, you know, equal amounts of damage uh, just with um, Eldritch Blast because it's just absurd. But uh, the Pathfinder equivalent of this build is a white-haired witch. How dare you? That... How dare you? <laughs> That is a grapple build that ends with an opponent pinned after two rounds and then using something with a high crit modifier to perform a coup de grace. Just make sure you take C invisibility. Just make sure that when you cast C invisibility, you do it before you fly up to the enemy. In a misplay on my part, I got my character killed in one round by, you know, seemingly thinking that, uh, the order in which I did things in Pathfinder didn't matter, which it does very highly so. Nearly killing my character in the process. That is true. I almost got a lot of us killed, but I actually did successfully dispel a fireball prior to that, saving your character. You did. Anyways, due to a mispart, my character got killed in one session of playing it. And I was excited about this build because I had three pets that all were, you know, functional animal companions or uh, familiars that, you know, only for the reason of having three pets. There wasn't a <laughs> mechanical advantage to having them at all. It was just neat. Which um, is interesting because that's normally my thing. Yeah, it's normally your thing, but you never Try. take the mechanical steps just, to get them. I just want to be given pets. You just ask our GM over no. and over again, can I make this goblin a Can pet? I have this he goblin no. baby? But no. And See, then, but a lot of GMs allow the goblin baby. Well, you know, in in the same game, he gave 
<laughs> our barbarian, a bear, and a shock lizard. To be fair, both of those were specifically to spite. Yeah, and I think both of them <laughs> were dead. They were, yes. This is he had low true. int. He had low int. So that's the takeaway from this is, you know, Pathfinder, very specific builds can accomplish very specific things. Fifth edition, you have to take three classes to make one very specific thing work the best way possible. I would like to throw in my one fifth edition build that isn't a build, it's just so so you take first thing, you take Druid. Uh-huh. Oh, I know this build. I love this build. You take uh so it doesn't matter at all. You take Circle of the Moon, I believe, right? I think so. Yep. Yeah, so you take Circle of the Moon at third level. And then you get to fifth level, and before fifth level, nothing matters. You it doesn't matter. Cares you're you're a druid. Do whatever you want. But at fifth level, you cast summon animal, and you summon thirty two panthers. There's a way to get thirty two panthers. Only it's just you. I believe it's eight. RB sixteen half CR monsters. I believe. Yeah. Is what it is. I think a panther is half a CR. Yeah. In circle of the moon. Doubles your summons. Yeah, one of the so circles So you just does, get yeah. 32 Panthers. And as we know in path in tabletop role-playing games, if you have more things, you will probably win. Yep. Realistically. Even if they're all trash, if they don't get killed by one fireball, you will probably win. Just because they have so many attacks. And that's that's the only path our fifth edition build that I really care about. Thank you for listening to the Bad Tutors podcast. Tune in next time for more insane ramblings and incoherent ideas.